you are great and greatly to be praised. And we are thankful, Father, that by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that we have the privilege of coming boldly into your presence. Father, we know it is your presence that changes our minds and our hearts and ultimately transforms our lives. And so we pray today, Lord, that as we settle in and seek to hear from you, that you would lead us closer to being transformed to the image of our Savior. Thank you for making the way. And now open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm so grateful to be back and uh, have the privilege of opening God's word and sharing with you today. I, I spent a couple of weeks on vacation and, and during that time, I felt compelled to assess the circumstances that we're facing as a church family. And, and I've had a bit of a burden that I just couldn't put my finger on, but, but I assumed that I was being nagged by the frustration of not being able to meet together because of the COVID crisis that we're facing. And I, I wondered if what we were facing, the way we're doing business, I wondered how it was going to affect the mission and the ministry of the church long term. Not, not just our local church family, but how is it going to impact the mission that God has called the greater church to in the world that he's called us to serve? You might be thinking that really what was bothering me was the fact that we weren't all here. And I'll admit that is part of the program. We're, uh, I'm grateful for those that are joining us. We're at about 25% of our normal group between the two worship services. And, and I do want to be able to gather together as the Scripture teaches to worship and pray and study God's Word to build those bonds of fellowship that are so transformative for our journey. But I can honestly say that as I evaluated it, that, that really wasn't what was bothering me. Because ultimately I understand that's where we are. And when I look at how God prepared us for this time where uh, we have the technology to be able to reach out beyond the walls of this church. And we have a fabulous team that helps us put, put it together every week. And we are doing it in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way with excellence. And the fruit of that is that God is literally expanding our influence beyond the walls of this church. So we are grateful. But as I've worked to get to the bottom of my burden, I concluded that it's not that we are relegated to virtual worship that's the problem. It, it's actually the danger of lapsing into what I'm going to call virtual spirituality that bothers me. Now, what do I mean by that? When, when I'm speaking about spirituality, I am not 
using that term in the mystical sense of personal experience where we're all about how we feel or what we're thinking or what we believe it becomes about us. But, but I'm thinking more in the practical sense. What are we doing with what we believe? What are we doing with it? If, if we're being nurtured in isolation through virtual worship, and that's what's happening, if we're being nurtured in isolation, the question is, will that reinforce the growing idea in our culture that following Jesus is personal? That it's an, it's an individual sport? Because it's not. The question is, will virtual worship cause us to shrink back from exercising our influence in the world, in the community that God has called us to serve? At, at heart, my concern is the effective working nature of our faith. Are we losing it? As James says, faith that doesn't work is dead. In today's parlance, from this perspective, we could say that faith that doesn't work is virtual faith that leads to virtual spirituality. Now, obviously, with that idea of virtual spirituality, I'm playing off what we know to be virtual reality, which, strictly speaking is oxymoronic, virtual reality. Because virtual reality is an almost, but not quite real reality. The word virtual dates back to the 1400s, and it means this, listen to this definition, it means being something in essence or effect, though not actually or in fact. I'm going to say that again. Virtual is being something in essence or effect, though not actually or in fact. So when something is virtual, it feels real, it, it, it has an effect on us emotionally and maybe even physically, but in fact it's nothing. It's not real. A placebo is virtual medication. Okay, we, we, if we're taking placebos, we think it's helping us, but in fact it has no direct impact on our physical well-being. A mirage in the desert is virtual hope. Okay, for the man who is dying of thirst, it keeps him moving, but in reality a mirage never delivers the hydration needed to sustain life. And then there's virtual reality, which, by the way, to define it, it is a computer-generated digital approximation of an imaginative, fictitious reality. Okay, that's virtual reality. It's a computer-generated digital approximation of reality. Now, let me tell you the goal of this technology. It is to so completely immerse the participant in the digital environment that no real-world stimuli it affects the experience. In, in other words, virtual reality's aim is to make the user feel and believe they are in another place. 
a virtual reality. So the participant puts on the headset and gets lost in something that feels real, that seems real, but in fact, it is not. Now, let's think through it. What happens when the user takes the VR, virtual reality headset, off? He or she re-enters the real world, right? Everything that happened, everything they experienced in VR stays there. It is confined to that digital environment. So, when the goggles come off, the user steps back into the real world right where they were and nothing has really happened. Unless, of course, you stumbled around in virtual reality and broke something. Nothing has really changed. The only fruit of the time spent in virtual reality is what the brain has recorded as the experience. Why? Because it's not real. It's virtual reality. Now, I don't mean to infer that virtual reality is a waste of time. The, the truth is there are actually some wonderful benefits from it. For instance, it is much cheaper and much safer to train pilots in VR than it is AR, which is actual reality. For example, if you want a pilot to be drilled in emergency procedures when the plane suddenly loses altitude or the instru instrument panel stops functioning or it goes into a tailspin, it's much better and cheaper and certainly much safer to do that in AR, in VR, rather than AR where, in actual reality, planes crash and people die. So obviously for training purposes, visual reality has some wonderful benefits when lessons learned are applied in actual reality. But listen, if the goal of virtual reality is not to prepare for actual reality, then it is fundamentally frivolous and oftentimes dangerously deceptive. So with that in mind, let's take that knowledge and, and apply it to virtual spirituality. What, what do I mean by that? It's an almost real, almost productive, almost believable, seemingly fruitful walk with Christ. Virtual spirituality represents an almost real, almost productive, almost believable, seemingly fruitful walk with Christ. And though it feels for all the world like it's real, like we are living our best life and we are on mission for God and doing exactly what He's asked us to do, when we are practicing virtual spirituality, nothing is happening. No good is being done. If we took off the headset of virtual spirituality, then what we find is that we have been deceived. 
Our time in that environment has no positive lasting effect on our journey with Christ, nor does it have any positive lasting effect in the world God has called us to save and serve. Now, while immersed, we're absolutely convinced that something good is happening. If by God's grace and through His Spirit we take off the headset and we look around, we realized we realized that we've been fooled. Now, let me just tell you the goal for the next few weeks of this series. It's to evaluate our own spirituality. It's to figure out where we are. Are we living in a real world? Or have we been deceived? The question is, are we living an authentic spirituality that is informed by the truth of God's Word, that is anchored in His grace and empowered by His Spirit? Or... Are we operating in a virtual spirituality that is rendering us powerless in the quest to live the abundant, fruitful life that we were created for and called to? Listen, if there's any question in your mind, what is the purpose of your existence? This is it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is to do good works that make a difference. That is your purpose. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. He said, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, God's purpose for our lives, for us to realize the joy that we have when living according to our song, it demands actual spirituality that is aligned with God's reality. And so my hope is that over the next few weeks that we're going to be equipped through God's Word to live in authentic spirituality. Now to begin with today, what we're going to do is identify the reason that it's so easy to lapse into virtual spirituality. And then beginning next week, we're going to identify some people or groups in Scripture that lapsed into this fake world, almost real world, that show us what not to do. So, here's the question. How does it happen? How do we get into virtual spirituality? Well, the primary reason that we go there is because we mistakenly put the cart before the horse. Okay, what, what theologians call putting the imperatives before the indicatives. Now, I know what you're thinking, not grammar. School hasn't started yet. Well, listen, I don't know if it's ever going to start, right? So, it's okay. We're going to learn something about indicatives and imperatives today. In the Scripture, they are there. What are imperatives? They are rules to follow. They are commands to keep. They are laws to live by. They're stated explicitly in Scripture, and it is imperative that 
our behavior is aligned with these commands. Okay, they are indispensable guidelines for living the righteous life God has called us to live. No question about it. There are just some things we must do. They are imperatives. But on the other hand, there are indicatives. Now, what are indicatives? They are statements, listen closely, they are statements about who we are and whose we are. They're statements about who we are by virtue of whose we are. Now, the world we live in teaches us that we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps if we're going to accomplish anything. If we want to be somebody, we've got to do something. It's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. That's what we're told, right? But, listen closely, in God's economy, it's the exact opposite. In God's economy, it's being that not only leads to doing, but empowers it. So the world says, do something to be somebody. God says, you are somebody, now do something. The world puts the imperatives before the indicatives. You are what you do. God says, no, no, no. You do what you are. The indicatives come first. So in Scripture, we find both in the Old and the New Testament that it's the imperatives that follow the indicatives. Now, before God gave the nation of Israel the the Ten Commandments, which are the most famous imperatives in the Scripture, He reminds them of whose they are. Look at... Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then what does God do after making that statement? He lists the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images or idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Thou shalt not lie, commit murder, or adultery. Now, here's the question. Why in the world should they submit to those restrictions? Nobody else in the world is living by those Ten Commandments. All their neighbors are doing whatever they want to do. Why should they follow those restrictive commandments? Because the Lord was their God. Because He chose them to be His children. When they were in bondage, He showed His love for them by delivering them out of Egypt. So, They were in relationship with God as children because they were chosen by grace, listen, and not because of what they had done. Not because they were more righteous than any other nation and certainly not because their conduct made them worthy to be God's children. He chose them in grace. And listen, There were great benefits that came from being who they were, God's children. 
great benefits. They had a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. God protected them through the wilderness. Great benefits associated with being who they were and great responsibilities associated with being whose they were. Their charge was to live these Ten Commandments so the world around them could look and recognize there was something different about that group of people. They were God's children, and therefore they acted like it. The indicative preceded the imperatives. As a matter of fact, preceded it by 430 years. God chose Abraham, and 430 years later, He provided them the Ten Commandments. The indicatives precede the imperatives. But that's just the beginning in God's Word. Look, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Pay attention to what Paul says here. He, he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Listen, if we were putting the imperatives before the indicatives, we would assume that our repentance leads to God being nice to us. First we do, we earn God's approval, and then He showers us with kindness. But that's not what that Scripture says. God chooses to exercise kindness towards us and we respond in repentance. Because of His kindness, we choose to repent from our sins and live in righteousness. Because indicatives in God's economy precede imperatives. Now, if there's any doubt at this point, I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 13. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Listen to what Paul tells these believers, God's children in Ephesus. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. So, live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Oh, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Now, it's clear. And I want you to follow the logic. Listen to what Paul says about them. Once they were darkness. That was their being. They were, oh, by the way, we were too. See, Scripture tells us that we are born in sin. We like to think that we just sort of stumbled into darkness. 
we accidentally get moved into darkness. But what Paul says, at one point in time, before they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, before they became children of God, they were darkness. Who they were was a function of whose they were. They belonged to the prince of darkness. Just like we did. And you know what happened because of who they were? It led to what they did. They acted like people in darkness. They, they stumbled around. They, they, maybe they tried to be good, but why should they? They were lost. And they behaved like lost people. That's what we do. It's always amazing to me that Christians believe that non-Christians should act like us. You know, you know where that comes from? It comes from putting the imperatives before the indifference. God never thought of it like that. They were darkness, therefore they lived dark lives. But now, he says, having placed their faith in Jesus, there's something altogether different. They are children of the light, and therefore they are light in the Lord. Now there is something they must do. What is it? Live as children of light. There, God has no expectation that we would live as children of light so we can become children of light. His full expectation is that we become children of light. We are light. And then we live it. Look at the instructions, the commands, those imperatives that flow out of being light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We, we think we can produce goodness, righteousness, and truth without God. And maybe if we produce that, He'll accept us. It's not the way it works. Look what He says in verse 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, listen, here's what he's saying. Because we are light, we are to live good, righteous, truthful lives. As a matter of fact, as children, he says, our mission should be to find out what pleases our Father. Find out what, what He wants from us and then make it your life's mission to do it. Not in hopes that He will like us or love us or choose us. All that's been taken care of. It is in gratitude of His love and grace that we choose to live like what we are. Light. 
We don't behave hoping he'll love us or choose us. But because he already has. And so, because he's chosen us, we're to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, we are to let our lights shine so that those who are still in the enemy's clutches will see the light of God's love and his deliverance and follow him. Real spirituality is spirituality that keeps the indicatives before the imperatives. It keeps the focus on whose we are. It's spirituality that that makes our life a celebration of the fact that God's amazing grace offered us love before we deserved it and forgiveness before we asked for it. And listen, here's here's the truth. When we become believers, I think most of us have a season where we're we're living out the celebration of God's grace. Just the idea that God could forgive us and and love us fuels a, a passion and a devotion to let our light shine. But then... Sadly, over time, we kind of get over that. We kind of lapse back into the, if it's got to be, it's up to me. And we slip into virtual spirituality. A spirituality that forgets that we are loved for who we are. And it begins to fight for God's love and acceptance. He's already given us. In short, we actually begin to work for God's approval. And we do it in our own strength. And in so doing, We're denying the gospel and restricting the power of God in our lives. In so doing, we're actually sending the wrong message to the world He's called us to serve. We're saying to them, get your stuff straight and come join us. Why do we do that? Well, because we believe we've got to get our stuff straight so we can... Get back in God's good graces. Wrong. It's not how it works. That's never been how it works. By the way, if that's how we're doing it, we're doing it in our own strength. We're doing it without God. And you know what Jesus said about that? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
what in the world did he mean by that? Do you mean I can't put on my shoes apart from him? No, no, no. That's not what he was talking about. He was saying, apart from me, you can do nothing good. You can't accomplish anything in God's kingdom apart from him. In virtual spirituality, we can work real hard and we can act real good and it looks like something's happening, but Jesus says, make no mistake about it. Nothing's happening. It's not real. Because in God's economy, what's real is we live out of whose we are. It's the indicatives before the imperatives. If you've got those out of order, then the truth is you're living in the nightmare of virtual spirituality. And it's not doing you any good. And it's not doing the world that you've been called to serve any good. So, are you living in authentic spirituality or virtual? Well, I don't know. Not real sure. How can I find out? There are two indicators. Two questions. I want to challenge you to ask yourself. And I think these indicators will let you know your perspective. First, do you believe that you are defined by and identified with your biggest or most recent mistake? Do you believe your biggest mistake defines who you are? If that's the case, and you've got your imperatives before your indicatives. Because God says, listen, you're not defined by what you've done. You are not limited by what you've done. You are defined by what I did by sending my son Jesus to bring you into relationship with me. You are defined by the fact that you are loved before you ever behave. So if you're defining yourself by your biggest mistake... You're living in virtual spirituality. What's the second indicator? If you've joined our culture in canceling other people because of their biggest mistake, then you're living in virtual spirituality. If you have no grace for other people, if you think they are what they do, and you're not living in God's economy. If you think you can define someone by what they say, how they vote, how they look, what they do, wrong. Why should we be so graceless to other people when God was so gracious to us? The reality is that in God's economy, and thank God for this, but the reality is 
Mistakes don't define us. It's our relationship with God that defines us and sets us free to be all that God called us, created us to be. So here's the question. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you lapsed into virtual spirituality? Do you define your life or the lives of those around you by their behavior? Listen, God doesn't do that to us. Are there some things we're supposed to do? Absolutely. But that's because of who we are. It's because of whose we are. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand this most important truth. God loves you just as you are. There is nothing you can do to impress Him. There's nothing you can do that will cause him to say, oh good, I want him or her on my team. You've been chosen. The scripture says that while we were yet sinning, God sent Jesus to die for us. While we were rebelling against him, Christ gave his life for us. Why? Because he loved us. He wants us to be children of the heavenly father as he was dying on the cross with his hands open wide he was saying come just as you are you were once darkness but I'm going to make you a child of light that's what believing in Jesus is all about we accept the, the grace of love and forgiveness and we enter into God's kingdom and then we begin this journey of living out of our identity maybe you need to open your heart to Jesus and join God's family today or maybe you realize you've been a part of God's family and it started off with grace and it's a beautiful journey, but somehow along the way you just kind of lapsed into this virtual spirituality where you're trying to perform. Listen, let the Spirit help you take those goggles off today. Realize who you are. not defined by what you've done. Thank God we are defined by who He says we are in Christ Jesus. That ought to give us great, great joy. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You so much for the relief 
the truth of your word. Thank you that Jesus says that when we're burdened in this way, we we can come to him and enjoy the easy rhythms of your grace. Father, let us live in authentic spirituality. A spirituality that celebrates who we are. That seeks to find out what pleases you as our Father. And then pursues that with joy and persistence, letting our light shine in the dark world that needs your grace. We are thankful for your graciousness, Lord. Help us to be people not who cancel ourselves or cancel others, but people who love and encourage and point other people to you. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray.